Hi, everybody. Super excited to share my podcast with Buck Buckley, an incredible and powerful Philadelphia entrepreneur. Buck grew up in Bethlehem, PA, and then went to Episcopal Academy for high school and UNC for college. He now lives right outside Philadelphia with his wife, Susan, and they have two children. So Buck began his career as a loan officer and then joined Safeguard Scientifics at age 27, where he started from the bottom and quickly climbed the ladder to vice president of acquisitions. For anyone not familiar with Safeguard, it was founded by the late legendary Pete Musser. It was a venture capital firm and they were the first to invest in companies such as Comcast and QVC. Pete is often credited with creating the venture capital community in Philadelphia and so many of its successful entrepreneurs. So in the 1990s, Buck spent a significant amount of his time at Safeguard on the West Coast and became familiar with the internet. At that time, no one quite knew what the internet had the capacity to do to our world, but Buck had an inkling it was going to be huge, and he was obviously right. As a result, in 1996, he decided to launch his own venture capital firm called Internet Capital Group with Ken Fox. In August 1999, the company went public and was trading at $12 a share. By December 1999, the company was trading at over $200 a share, which is equivalent to $50 billion, and Buck was considered one of the most influential leaders in the early internet age. Then in 2001, the dot-com crash happened, and the stock plummeted to $12 a share. Everyone told Buck to file for bankruptcy, but he didn't give up. Instead, he pivoted his business model and had an incredible comeback. He transitioned the company to actual corporation, and instead of investing in multiple companies, they only invested in a few core companies. In 2017, the company sold its three majority-owned businesses and doubled their investor shares. Today, he is now building his new company called Seminole Capital. Hope you guys enjoy. Welcome back to the podcast. So excited to have you here. And just so the listeners know how we're connected, um, I work at McGuire Hayden Real Estate Company and you're our existing tenant. And like I said, I have to do a quick plug for them. So we own office and industrial product all within the greater Philadelphia area. And we own a handful of buildings in the suburbs. So Wayne, Berwyn, Malvern, Conshohocken, Westchester. And I know office space is not trending right now. But you never know who's tuning in. Maybe there's someone who works in New York and now is in Philly and needs a satellite office. So we might have something. So I'll include that in my show notes. Um, but back to you. So you're an existing tenant at our building in Wayne, which is old Safeguard campus. And we'll talk about the importance of Safeguard later on in the conversation. Um, but today your company called Seminole Capital occupies space here. And we executed a lease with you and your team in April, 2020. Um, and we're super grateful for that because at that point we were in the thick of the pandemic. So we're grateful that you put trust in us. There was a lot of reasons to not sign a lease during that time. Um, but you followed through with it, which is awesome. So now you've been here for, is it, when did you guys move in officially? I think in July. July. Okay. Yeah. So listeners know it's October 15th, 15th. 2020, about seven months into this pandemic. Yeah, hard to believe. Um, so speaking of COVID-19, I listened to another podcast you were on in 2019, which seems like years ago since it's pre-COVID. Um, in that interview, you tell us about the different recessions you've been through in your lifetime. So the 1991 dot-com bubble in 2000 and 2001, which we'll talk about later, um, and the 2008 recession. In, in that interview, you said how 2008 was difficult, but not as difficult as you would have expected. And you think the reason is, is because you had been through the dot-com bubble. So you had a lot of experience underneath your belt um, and you knew how to respond. So as someone that has been through significant economics, ups and downs, would love 
to hear your thoughts on COVID-19 and sort of where we're going with it. Well, uh, first, Steph, thanks for having me on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, your question on COVID is a, uh, you know, an interesting one and an important one. And, um, you know, only time will tell. Mm -hmm. But um, as I think about it today, um, you know, we've obviously never seen anything quite like this in terms of impacting both how we work um, and and how we live. Um, And the the I would say from a short term standpoint, obviously, there's massive dislocation and, and, and lots of folks that have uh, suffered because of this virus. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's really interesting from a business perspective is you have incredible winners mm-hmm. and, 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 and a huge industry, a number of industries that have suffered greatly. And um, some of it would be sort of obvious in hindsight and some of it is not so obvious. And, um, you know, every... Uh, if I think about it, the four recessions, four, almost five now, uh, I've been through, you know, there are there are groups that really are on the sort of at the ground zero. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the travel, entertainment, leisure industry sort of ground zero in this one. Um, and ironically, the technology sector mm-hmm. is prospering. Um, most parts of the technology um, sector are prospering. You know, fast go back to the dot-com bubble, the technology sector was at ground zero. And right. many of the other other industries were prospering, so you know it's it's um, each each has its own. But I would say that to, to me, from a personal standpoint, this has had the greatest impact on on how we live and work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think from a short term standpoint, there is a lot of pain and dislocation. But I'm an optimist by nature, and I think that there are um, going to be many positives that come out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and most importantly, how we think about other people. We right. think about our friends, our family, and this t- virus. You have to think about other people, mm-hmm. not just yourself. And I think that that is a true, a long-term true blessing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't see it today. It's it's a it's it makes everything much more difficult. But I think long-term, I'm quite optimistic that we're going to become a a, a, a more caring culture. Mm-hmm. There'll be silver linings. There are. Come of it, for there sure. are, and there's many that we don't see today. Exactly. Um, okay, so backing up a little bit, I'd love for you to tell the listeners um, a little bit of background on you, so where you grew up and went to school. I grew up in uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. about an hour north of, of Philadelphia, and um, uh, I grew up in a you know with, with family of a father and mother who were uh, who were great, um, very you know integral part of, of my sister and my. But you know, both parents were really very instrumental in, in my development. Mm-hmm. My mother was uh, had 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 amazing energy, um, was just full of life, and uh, was was very devoted to helping others. Mm-hmm. Um, spent a lot of time in working with uh, women in, in that, that were in prison, okay. um, especially pregnant mothers okay. in prison, and then did uh, spent the last uh, decade or so in working with folks from a hospice perspective. Okay. Um, and father was very successful career, um, you know, as an investor, and then formed his own investment company. Uh, there's a lot of entrepreneurship in our family. My mm-hmm. grandfather uh, formed Buckley Brothers back in the 1920s, which okay. was an investment bank, and then uh, father formed Buckley Muthing. And so, I don't say it was preordained, but uh, I, you know, we always talked about business and um, and and being an entrepreneur and what that meant. Um, and so uh, they. They had they had a big influence in my life for yeah. sure. 
Uh, you went to Piscopal for high school, right? Yeah. So my parents got divorced, and uh, my mother moved down to the Philadelphia area in 1974. Okay. So I was 13 or 14, and I uh, went to Episcopal Academy and mm-hmm. went to high school there and had a um, great experience at Episcopal. Met a, met a number of great friends that are still friends today, and uh, um, uh, felt fortunate to go to go to two good schools, Marine Academy and Bethlehem and Episcopal here. Okay. And then where did you go to college? I went to uh, the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Okay. Tar Heel. Sure. And um, I uh, I wanted to go to somewhere where it was a different environment, a different culture mm-hmm. um, than, you know, sort of the Northeast. Sure. And um, I went down to visit. Uh, part of a recruiting trip, I played soccer at, at UNC under the legendary coach Anson Darns. Okay. I'll tell a quick story later. But on Anson, but um, uh, I... I spent one day there uh, going to a UNC Duke basketball game, and I realized oh, yeah. this was the, the, the place for me. And um, uh, never looked back and had a great experience there. Um, played played four years. Um, but more importantly, um, you know, the late bloomer from an academic standpoint mm-hmm. and, um, and, and really began to uh, embrace um, all the, uh, you know, all the educational opportunities that, mm-hmm. that a university like Chapel Hill provide. Right, exactly. So after Episcopal and then UNC, what did you do after? I graduated with a political science degree, which really does nothing for you from a business career perspective, okay. but but it does teach you how to think. Mm-hmm. Uh, to you know, I see you, you read and 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 you have to write and express yourself. So in many ways, those are very important attributes. And 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 liberal arts seems to be on the wane today, but but I tell. To many young young kids that are they thinking about what to major in, it's still a great path. Okay. Um, I was fortunate. I, I, I was actually thinking of moving to Atlanta. Okay. Um, I came back here after school, and a lot of my friends were in Atlanta, and I was planning on heading back down. Um, but I was fortunate to get a job for the Philadelphia National Bank okay. in their commercial lending program. And what was appealing to me was they had a two-year program, mm. which taught you finance, accounting. Okay. Um, and uh, you know, sort of the business fundamentals. Sure. And since I had very few of those, okay. I thought it was a great opportunity from a learning perspective. Okay. So you spent two years there. Yes. Okay. And well, then, actually, three. Three. Okay. Uh, I spent the last year at PMB um, in in what was called the loan reclamation department. Okay. Which was a not a very uh, fancy term for for basically the department that dealt with problem loans. Okay. So businesses that run into prob- trouble. And we were on the 53rd floor away from everyone else. And it was sort of very entrepreneurial for a bank like PNB. Right. And um, I learned more in that year uh, than I certainly had learned in the two previous years. But I just the lessons I learned there were very instrumental in, uh, in helping us when we went through the dot-com bust. Okay. You know, 15, 17 years later. Right. In terms of what you needed to do and how to position yourselves. Um, you know, when a recession or when hard times came. Okay. And, uh, and so they wanted me to come back and be a, a traditional commercial lender. And I mm-hmm. said to myself, that's really not what I want to be. Right. And so uh, um, you know, that's when I uh, decided to leave the bank and then okay. join Safeguard. And join Safeguard. Which, what year was that? 1987. 1987. Okay. And how old were you at that point? 27. Okay. Were you married at that point too? I, um, I was, no, I was dating Susan. Okay. Uh, we married a year later. Um, but I was uh, uh, I was evaluating either joining Safeguard or, or working at Smith Klein Beach, okay. um, which they had a training program in the pharmaceutical space. And I said to myself, Do I really want to go through a second training program, right, right, right. Um, or do I really want to work with this 
this um, great entrepreneur, Pete Musser, and obviously I was the low man on the totem pole as a financial analyst, but okay. I, uh, after giving some thought, I said this is absolutely what I would like to do. Okay, so you're 27, you, you go to Safeguard. So a lot of listeners tuning in, they obviously know what Safeguard is and was, but a lot of people don't. Um, I think even around my age, you know, early yes. 30s, they're not as familiar. So I'd love for you to give a little background on what Safeguard was and what Safeguard did for the entire Philadelphia area too. Yeah, Safeguard was founded by um, uh, legendary uh, business slash investor Pete Musser. Mm-hmm. Pete started Safeguard in the uh, early mid '60s, and he and was one of the early venture capitalists in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, at the same time, folks in the West Coast were doing, beginning to do this in uh, Boston. Pete did it in, in on the platform of a public company. Okay. First called Lancaster Check Writing, and mm-hmm. then Safeguard Business Systems. Um, and Pete invested in in all types of <coughs> uh, businesses, mostly technology, okay. in general. And then in the early '80s, with the advent of of the personal computer mm-hmm. and software applications for businesses, as that began to expand beyond the, the big IBMs of the world. Um, Pete began to invest in software companies, okay. and um, you know he really, from a you know from an industry standpoint, created the venture capital industry in in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and I would arguably say in the Mid Atlantic. Okay, um, you have NEA down in Baltimore, um, but between NEA and Safeguard, they were really the the two drivers for for venture capital and entrepreneurship in this in, in the Mid Atlantic, and and Pete has had a number of. Inc- Incredible wins, including uh, Novell, Cambridge Technology. Pete sold the first cable franchise to Ralph Roberts that started Comcast. Okay. Um, also, the first investor in QVC. Mm-hmm. Just he was the first investor in QVC. He was. Wow. To name a few. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so I joined in '87 as they were beginning to build out their tech, their software practice. Okay. Got as a it. financial analyst. Sure. So you started from the bottom and you slowly worked your way up there. What was it like climbing the ladder there? Well, what I loved about Pete, and and I think it's it's it, it's so important today. Pete, Pete created an environment where you were allowed to do whatever you know. You had a job to do, but if you wanted to go above and beyond that job, mm-hmm. he gave you the space, the room, okay. created the opportunity. You could create your own opportunities. Sure. Now, my first few years as a financial analyst, I was doing a lot of the grunt work, which was very appropriate for for my stage okay. in the company, but I. I soon became the acting CFO of a company called LCI Laser Communications Inc. in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Okay, and that was a company you guys invested. We in? had we had bought a, a six, ended up being a sixty percent stake in, in the company. Okay, um, and uh, we brought in a new CEO. Okay, and uh, he needed some help, you know, getting the business organized, and so I went out there literally for. A year and a half. Oh wow! I drove okay. out almost every day to Lancaster. To Lancaster. Okay, um, it's actually a nice drive. It, it, it is a beautiful drive, but uh, <laughs> I, I got my fair share of speeding tickets. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> on my way out. But what it taught me really sort of the fundamentals of business. Okay, I had seen it, you know, from ten thousand feet from a banking perspective. But spending a year and a half as a CFO of a, it, it was a struggling company at the time as well. Okay, I mean we we had a couple of good years and then it sort of hit hard times, and um, and so it was a great. Uh, period of, of learning for me. Okay, got it. So then you were the CFO of that company, and then um, what was your next role that you took on after that? Yeah, I, I began to do uh, lead a lot of the due diligence okay. um, for our new investments, mm-hmm. um, and 
was involved in the Cambridge Technology Investment that Don Caldwell and Pete led, uh, which was a huge success. And and then as th- as I gained more experience, I then began to lead investments. Okay. And uh, led a several investments in the early '90s, and in, in 1993 became vice president of acquisitions for the company. Okay. Um, and uh, and so basically, I mean, there were other folks doing deals, but by and large, you know, managing you know all acquisitions mm-hmm. were involved in all helping lead those acquisitions. Got it. Investments. So you started in 87 from the bottom, and 93, you were vice president of acquisitions. Yes. So anyone tuning in that may be climbing the corporate ladder, do you have any advice on how to show your value and get noticed? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's important to to understand sort of what your roles and responsibilities are at that moment in time. Okay. But then understand what's possible. Mm-hmm. You know, don't limit yourself by the four walls around you, mm-hmm. um, but, but take – what you have and say, okay, I think I can make, I can take this to, you know, two or three steps beyond. Okay. And I also think being, and I, and we did, I did this early and I got some advice from some, some from friends, you know, become an expert in something mm-hmm. that's relevant to what you're doing. Okay. And so the area that I developed an expertise in, uh, was in virtual, re- virtual reality. Okay. Don't ask me how I got into it, <laughs> uh, but it, in the early 1990s, there was a company called Silicon Graphics, okay. and VR was really on the forefront, especially from a B2B standpoint. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I had hired a guy named Ken Fox, sure. uh, who eventually became my partner in, uh, at ICG, and we went out to the West Coast mm-hmm. and met with at least 15 VR companies, virtual okay. reality companies. They were doing some wow. very cool things, yeah. especially on the B2B side. Um, okay. And we ended up investing in a company called Multigen. Okay. And uh, and it taught us we, we knew that space okay. as well as anyone in the industry. Wow. Okay. Um, and Multigen wasn't a, a home run, but it was a solid double. Right. Um, and that process of, of of getting deep and becoming that an expert in that space, we probably spent a year and a half okay. on it, was sort of the the roadmap for what we did on the internet. Right. Exactly. Uh, two years later, and after spending you know, Going back and forth between you know Philadelphia and San Francisco for a year, Ken convinced me to open an office in California. Okay. So he moved out. Wow. In San Francisco, so then Safeguard had their first West Coast office, office in '94. Okay. okay, got it. Um, and so, my advice, going back to your question, is, you know, don't be satisfied with what you, your current opportunities are. Mm-hmm. Don't don't wait for somebody to tell you. Okay. Just go do it. Be proactive. Be pro- be proactive, and you know, you, don't, you don't want to do it in a way that. You, know, you step on other folks' um, feet or, sh- or, or toes, but mm-hmm. but but there's plenty of room in every business to think about uh, about what's possible, right? Okay. And and take the initiative, and don't tell people you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Just go do it. Just go do it, yeah, yeah. And, and come back. Okay, I like that. So you guys started to spend a lot of time on the West Coast. What I think is really cool because I was only probably like six or seven years, so I don't remember the, the 90s at this time, but you talk a lot about, and the other podcast you did, about how the internet was sort of coming yeah. on fire, and no one really knew what was going to happen, but you guys sort of saw something, and you you really felt that you know there was an opportunity. Um, so can you tell us about how you and Kevin Fox, Ken, Ken, Ken Fox, um, started IGC? Yes. We... Um... You know, as we as we were spending more time out there, um, you know, we, we started to you know meet the uh, you know the key investors out you know whether they're folks at uh, Kleiner Perkins or Draper Fisher, okay. um, uh, and 
you know, got, began to get into the deal flow. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we've been focused on virtual reality, but we were then beginning to see some interesting deals in software mm-hmm. security, um, you know, just other business applications. Mm-hmm. And we, we started hearing more and more, sort of as we went from 93 to 94, about the internet. Okay. And if you had asked me in 92 about the internet, I, I, I would know just enough that it, would, it was coming out of DARPA, okay. which was a defense a right. defense agency. Which is crazy today, to the 20th, it rules our lives. I know. It's just really wild. No one, yeah, I mean, the, the average citizen had no idea what the internet was in 93. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and then it actually was all born out of the defense department, okay. which is a very interesting fact in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And the more we, we, we were exposed to it, and we heard a, a speech by John Doerr in early 94, okay. which he began to talk about what the potential the internet could do. Okay. And uh, and it sort of piqued our, our curiosity. We'd made the multi-gen investment, and we decided that, that it really made sense to, to take a deep dive here. Okay. And it, this was the, the, the very earliest days of the Internet, and it was not clear mm-hmm. what it was going to be. Okay. And I always say um, to people, it was like three blind men and an elephant. You knew it was big. You knew it was going to be powerful, but you right. had no idea what it was going to be. Okay. And... Um, and so we spent a year literally talking to everybody we could about okay. you know, what, what they felt the internet was going to do to both from a, you know, a consumer standpoint and a mm-hmm. business standpoint. And the con- bottom line conclusion was in 1995, Ken and I concluded that this was going to fundamentally transform how we both worked and okay. lived at home. Right. And most of the businesses at that time were more B2C. Okay. You had Yahoo and right. Excite and Lycos and Netscape, all B2C kinds of companies, but there were very few B2B companies okay. at the time. And we said to ourselves, well, we don't know anything about the B2C world. Right, right, right. Because we had been you know, investing in software companies that sold to businesses. Let's focus on the business side where we could understand the value proposition. Okay. And um, he also decided that Safeguard, as entrepreneurial and as, you know, great as it was from a mm-hmm. platform standpoint to keep up um, and to be able to acquire the resources and focus that you needed to win in this space mm-hmm. if you needed a company that was dedicated to it. Okay. And that was really the kernel of the idea for ICG. Okay. And um, and we spent about six months in um, 90, the first half of 96 coming up with a plan. Okay. Um, I went out to talk to a few folks mm-hmm. about it. A couple said, what is the internet? And, and at the time, that the notion was no one can make money on the internet. Right. And we, we felt that that was a, a flawed view, a current okay. view, but that there was going to be a tremendous amount of money being made. It was going to change our lives. We just didn't know how. Okay. And But we knew that if we focused on the business side, we'd figure it out. So we went we went to Pete. We, we Ken and I just each put in, decided to put in, you know, a, a million dollars. Okay. We had money we had made at Safeguard. And we had raised about five million. Okay. Um, and Chris Birch was the first investor. Sure. Okay. Uh, from uh, Tory Birch. Exactly. Yeah. Um, first person who believed in us. Okay. And I went to Pete and I asked Pete. I said, Pete, he thought we were going to leave. Okay. I said, Pete, we don't want to leave. We don't, we're here to, you know, we want to leverage Safeguard. Sure. We want yeah. We're 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 part of Safeguard. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason why we're here is because of you. Right. Um, but we want to raise $20 million, which was a lot of money at the time. It seems like not a lot of money today. Mm-hmm. And we want to invest in B2B internet software companies okay. and service companies. And he said, he looked at me, it was the day after Thanksgiving in 1996, and he said, yeah. Buck, 
I don't want to do that. Okay. And in that moment, my heart sank. I go, what are we going to do? And he goes, no, I want to invest. I, we asked him for $5 million. I want to invest 15 Wow. Yeah. And um, we th- you, we th- I think you should raise forty. Okay. I said, I said to myself, this is the best <laughs> yeah. day after Thanksgiving yeah, I've ever had. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and he said, you know, I think we should also talk to a couple other potential strategics. Okay. Um, and we had been interested in Comcast. Right. Um, at the time, I did not know Brian Roberts, uh, but Pete had obviously sold um, Ralph the first cable franchise and also they Comcast and Safeguard had co-invested in QVC. Okay. So they had a, a good history of working together and sure, yeah. I, I was Pete, Pete introduced me to Julian Brodsky. Okay. Um, who was vice chairman and, and had been CFO and an incredible businessman. Okay. Incredible guy. And um, long story short, Julian agreed to invest. Okay. And then we got Compact Computer and we raised forty and we were off to off the races. Yeah. And quick word on Pete, too, because a lot of people that may be tuning in around my age, again, may not know about him, but he really was an incredible person. So he leased space here at our building for, you know, I don't know. Well, he, built, he helped he build, build this it. building. Yeah, right. And so I had the pleasure of getting to know him for probably over the past, um, he passed last year, for probably around two years. And he was the such a nice, genuine person to work with and yeah. even do deals with at his, you know, his nine years old. There's... I miss him every day. I mean, yeah. he his infectious energy mm-hmm. was incredible. He he just had a passion for supporting entrepreneurs and letting them do what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think two things that I, people ask me, well, what made Pete special? And I think two things that stand out to me. One, he had an amazing ability to take a complex problem and simplify it. Okay. And I think simplicity in business is very good. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had an amazing ability to make you feel like you were very special. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I had a lot of people that make feel very special. Mm-hmm. But in the early 90s, and we didn't talk about this, the amount of talent at Safeguard, right. you know, from Ira Looper to Mike DiPiano to Don Caldwell, Bob Keith, these are all okay. folks that have gone on to, you know, achieve a lot of success, create other funds. Mm-hmm. Um, it's incredible. And that that's just scratching the surface. Right. Um, the amount of talent here at Safeguard, I would argue, on the East Coast, probably had more talent here in this building okay. than any other place on the East Coast. Wow. And in in sort of from 91 to 97, 8. And they occupy all eight buildings? Most of them. Most of them? Most okay. of them. So, so listeners know we're in Wayne and it's an eight building portfolio that people still call the Safeguard campus. campus. Yeah, exactly, which is pretty cool. It's one of the reasons I'm back here. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in 96, you guys launched IDC? Okay. And so just so I understand too, so it's still part of Safeguard. Safeguard, um, at the, so basically Safeguard owned 40, 35%. Okay. Um, Comcast and uh, Compaq each owned about twelve percent. Okay. And uh, management team owned uh, about twenty. Okay. And the, the other investors owned. And then we started making investments. Um, we invested in a a great local company here called uh, it was called Water Online at the time, led okay. by a guy named Mike Hagen mm-hmm. and Mike McNulty. Yeah, yeah. We said we got to change their name, and it became Vertical Net. Okay. And I'll talk a little bit about vertical net later, but but several other investments across the country, and we had uh, a company called Match Logic um, that we uh, invested in in '96, and we ended up selling to uh, Excite okay. in '98, um, and returned about five times our money. Oh wow! Okay. And that allowed us to raise a second round. Okay. Um, uh, we raised seventy-five million in the second round. And backing up a little bit too, 
when you were raising capital from investors. Yeah. A question I like to ask um, guests is um, when you had to make pitches or presentations to potential inve investors, there may be a lot of listeners tuning in that are in that process. They're starting a company and they're trying to raise capital. What advice would you give to them on how to make effective presentation or pitches? Just correct me if I'm wrong. You typically only have like five minutes. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's, uh, I basically, you, you have the deck to hand to the person, mm -hmm. but you have to have a conversation with the person. Right. And you need to paint in those five minutes the big vision okay. of what you want to do. Mm -hmm. And then as best you can connect the dots from where you are today to what that big, how, how you're going to get to that big vision. Okay. And it's really, um, it's the ability to convey that confidence mm -hmm. um, that yes, I may not know all the steps I'm going to take, have to take to get to where I want to go, mm -hmm. but I, I'm going to, I'm going to get there. In a, as humble way as you can, okay. um, and we may have to course correct here and there, but this is what we want to do, and this is what we believe we're set up to do, okay. and um, and so it's not about the deck, okay. but it's it's really about the possibility. Mm -hmm. I mean, especially on the early stage. Okay. You know, obviously, you, as you get a little bit more mature, you then have a framework to uh, to talk about. Okay. Um, but I'm talking about the, at the early stage. The early stages, okay. Because I interviewed. Um, Mike Vaughn, who was the CFO of Venmo for around eight years, he was there in the very early stages yeah. when they first launched. And he was talking, he said, you know your story inside and out because you're only going to have five minutes to yeah. pitch it. So, yeah, you, and you need to know all the details. Mm -hmm. Hopefully you don't get into the details. I mean, if you have five minutes, you're not going right. to get into the details. Right, right. But, but figure you have five minutes. Okay. And then if that goes well, you'll have plenty of time to spend going through the details. Got it. Okay. Um, okay, so back to you raised the seventy million again. What year was that? That was in nineteen ninety eight. Okay. And what was really interesting at the time was all the attention was going on the B two C side, the mm -hmm. Yahoo's, mm -hmm. Amazon. Okay. And we knew all those guys. Sure. Um, but there was no attention. We were the backwater, the B two B side. Even though it's you know arguably as big. Sure. Um, but it was vertical net okay. um, that really sort of in late ninety eight, early ninety nine. With their IPO that put B two B on the map, okay. And Vertical then went public, and uh, we owned a, roughly fifty percent of the company and had a ten billion dollar valuation. Wow! In January of ninety nine. Okay. And um, it had a great team. Mark Walsh was the CEO. Mike Hick and uh, was you know his his really co partner president. Um, Mike McNulty. It, 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 they really had a, a great business model. Okay. Um, and one that you know today, as I talked to Mike, would still be very relevant okay. if if it was if had, we hadn't sold. Got it. Okay. Um, and then, you know, we ha um, were beginning to um, you know the whole the industrial Fortune 500 were beginning to wake up to the power of the internet. Okay. They had sort of dismissed it, mm -hmm. um, and we were beginning to get calls from all types of. Uh, senior level and, and senior executives from major corporations around the world. Oh wow! Okay. Um, and uh, and so um, you know you could feel just the entire world waking up. Sure. To what the internet was going to do. Okay. And and no one had a clue. Yeah. So we were sort of all in it together. Okay. Um, you know, GE Cap. Just to give you an idea, the second round GE Capital and IBM came in. Okay. And then as we did a mezzanine mezzanine round pre IPO, we had. Ford, AT&T. Ford, yeah. Wow. AT&T. Um, and um, I'm blanking on 
Those are some ma major names. Major names. Yeah. <laughs> and we were, and, and so, um, and DuPont, excuse me. Um, and the story I like to tell, I think this epitomizes the moment in time. And we're probably not going to see this moment again. I was having lunch with uh, Bob Sargent and John Marshall, who run JM and Company, and they did, they do, they did, and they still do most of our searches. Okay. And uh, we were having lunch at three 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 Bellrose. My phone rings. My BlackBerry. Uh, no, my, that was a cell phone. Um, okay. And the other man said, uh, "Walter, this is Chad Holiday, the chairman and CEO of Dupont." Wow. Yeah. I'd never met Chad, and he goes, "I'd like to have dinner with you tonight." I said, "Okay, well, I'm, I'm, I don't have anything tonight. I'm happy, love to have dinner with yeah. you." He goes. Uh, where would you like to meet? I said. I said to the guys, pull the, I put the phone down. I said, "The CEO of Dupont wants to have dinner with me tonight. Where should I meet him?" Right. And I, I was looking at the, uh, you know, the uh, uh, matches on the table, and I said, okay. "Well, let's meet at three 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 Bellrose." Okay. Because I'll see, I'll just see you at six o'clock. Wow. And fast forward, we had eight joint ventures a year later with Dupont. Wow. And everything from plastics to chemicals to asset yeah. management, um, paper, uh, yeah. agriculture. Um, Sadly, most of those uh, didn't work okay. because you had incredible cultural gap between the old mainline industrial businesses and, and young up, upcoming entrepreneurs. Right. It was like the Grand Canyon. Right, right, right. And we were trying to be the arbiter between them. Okay. And so, but it, we all learned from it. Sure. Um, yeah. But it was sort of illustrative of the time. Right. And so we went public in August, capitalizing on all that momentum. August of 99. At $12. Okay. It reminds me of today. We opened at 24. Right. And um, you know, the next thing I knew, by October, November, we were at 80. Okay. And um, and we, we knew we were overvalued. Okay. And Henry Blodgett, um, who was at that time Merrill Lynch, and, and Merrill had taken us public. And I had a long conversation about, well, Henry, don't you think you should put a neutral on us? Okay. And he said, we went back and forth, and he said, you know, I, I think we should just let the stock go where it goes. Sure. Um, and uh, and we did, um, and just kept going up. And it started. It went from twelve, and eventually traded at two hundred dollars a share. It did. And for um, listeners that don't understand that, it was worth fifty billion. It was. Point? Okay. Um, and we did a secondary just to capitalize on that in December. Okay. And um, we raised about a billion four. Five hundred million of that was um, debt, convertible debt, right? Which was, in hindsight, a huge mistake, which okay. I will talk about later. Um, we didn't need to raise that debt, uh, but we did. Um, and uh, uh, you know, it was. I felt like most meetings we went to, um, and I should. This should have been the sign, the standing room only. And as we left, they wanted our autograph. Oh, wow. So yeah. that's not a good sign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's not a good sign for a number of reasons, uh, but one that you're near the top. Right. And Did it get to your head at all? At yeah, absolutely. Point? Yeah. I mean, you're a human being. Right. And, you know, I, and I said, and I, and it, as I've had a chance to look back over, over, you know, you know, over these last 20 years, as the pace of, of, of activity dealing with the major Fortune 500 companies, you know, mm -hmm. building out offices, Globally, okay. make, uh, making you know making investment decisions at a faster pace. Our decision making process broke down. Okay, it absolutely broke down in hindsight. Right. It wasn't obvious at the time; otherwise, we would have corrected it. And how you invested in around sixty companies? Sixty-five. Okay, got it. Uh, but the pace we had gone from maybe twenty twenty-five to forty in a year. Oh wow! And yeah. you know we, we we had hired and hired some amazing people. Okay, uh, but the processes, the procedures, and the uh, um, weren't able to keep up. Okay. And the, 
it was sort of, I felt like one of those gerbil treadmills. The faster you ran, the further you behind. You got right. behind. Um, that was all happening while okay. we did the secondary and sort of under underneath. And you know, to I think one of the manifestations of that was raising five hundred sixty million of convertible debt. We right. shouldn't have done it. Right. Had we thought it through, we wouldn't have done it. Okay. Um, and uh, uh, but yeah, the stock got to two hundred dollars. Okay. Um, and. Uh, uh, and we were, we were doing a lot of stock deals at the time, leveraging mm-hmm. our stocks. So I think that we, we were taking advantage of that. But our companies were also at that moment; they were all young. Mm-hmm. They were all growing as quickly as we were, but they were all losing enormous amounts of money. Sure. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so uh, when the bubble burst, we knew we were in a a unrealistic environment. Okay. But I don't think anybody realized we were going to go from. You know, eighty miles an hour to five miles an hour. Uh, right, exactly. In, in a span of six months, okay, or less. Um, and so, when the bubble burst, um, you know, the, the carnage was just hard to even describe. Okay. Um, so the music almost stopped around two thousand. Yeah, so the, the bubble burst in March, April. Okay, two thousand. So by June, you realize that things weren't coming back. Okay. And by the fall, you realize that they weren't coming back with it, and they were also getting worse. Right. And so all of these, you know, all our companies, no needed money. Right. Um, and and just to give you an idea, we had raised, you know, they were burning on average, we were burning as a organization about one hundred and twenty million dollars a quarter. Okay. Wow. Um, now, obviously, in a, in a different environment, you could continue to raise capital. Sure. But yeah. the market had shut. Okay. Um, we were in a recession, not not a deep recession from an, an overall economic standpoint, but a, um, a depression mm-hmm. in the technology in sector. Technology. Okay. Um, so it was worth $50 billion in mm-hmm. around August 99. And what did it go down to at the crash? Well, um, you know, a couple hundred. Okay. A hundred million. And if you include the debt, Right. It didn't have any enterprise value. Okay. Wow. And so I liken it to you were on top of the world, then you were in a hole so deep you couldn't see the light. Yeah. And everywhere we turned, there were fires. Okay. I mean, everywhere. Companies were running out of money. Companies, you know, were. And so, you know, we it took us a, a month or two to get back on our feet. Okay. Just to realize, you know, what had happened. Right. And, and how I, many people were working at the company? We had 120. Okay. Did you have to... Yes, we had six offices globally. Okay. So the sort of three things you do, I, I believe, when when you go through a major crisis, one is is to get yourself as close as fast as you can to break even. Okay. Um, whatever it takes, because you have to begin to control your own destiny. Right. And so we had six offices. We had 120 people, some incredibly talented people, mm-hmm. and we had six. And so we and we had 65 companies. Okay. All of them burning money. Not right. a one was making money. Okay. Um, consistent, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we went. We went from 120 people to 20 okay. in one office. Wow. We went from focusing on 65 companies to 15. Okay. And it was one thing to to let go um, some great people, but it was even more painful to tell a really good CEO mm-hmm. that we weren't going to fund them anymore. The companies you were invested in. We were invested okay. In. Those were the hardest set of conversations I've ever had in my life. I right. hope to never have them again. Mm-hmm. Um, these were, you know, and we were the largest, we weren't the majority owner, but we were the largest shareholder. And if sure. we weren't going to invest, that means they were going out of business. Okay. 
and um, it was as painful a period of time as I've ever been through and and wouldn't want to wish it on anyone okay but the, and we had an amazing team and mm-hmm. I would say that the, what the team the team of that, those 20 folks did more in, 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 in a couple of years than we had done in the previous six and this is around 2000 from 2000 late 2000 to 2004 okay um, so you guys went from being on top of the world and then we had, we were having to survive. we were in a in a deep canyon mm-hmm. and most everybody thought we were out of going to go out of business okay because on top of all that we had 560 million dollars of debt okay. that would come due at the Detail. end of 04 wow and so everybody thought all the bankers said just file okay just file you guys are done um, right. and uh, you know i i would say that i never lost belief that we were going to make it through right ever I'm not sure that's logical or sane but it's the truth yeah and the team never lost belief okay most more importantly and um and you know i think when you have a team and you believe and you have that grit and perseverance mm-hmm. you can do great things right. amazing things yeah um it's not easy and there is never a silver bullet it's 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 a hundred little steps right to get to what you to where you want to go exactly. or a thousand little steps right just being consistent about those each little step and celebrating those steps. Right, exactly. Um, one question I wanted to ask too, we talked about grit, um, which is great, but then also um, the meaning of a great leader, because obviously mm-hmm. at that time you had to be a leader to, mm-hmm. um, to the people from 2005. And so I recently read um, Bob, Bob Eager's book, The Past CEO yeah. of Disney. It's the ride of a lifetime, lessons learned from 15 years as CEO of the Walt Disney Company. Have you read that yet? No, my daughter, Alexa, had just read it um, this summer and said it was one of the best books she's read. It was awesome. So here's one quote I wanted to read and get your thoughts on it. So, and he's quoting this about um, one of the other past CEOs of Disney, Michael Eisner. And he said, Michael had plenty of reasons to be pessimistic, but as a leader, you can't communicate that pessimism to the people around you. It ruins morale. It saps energy and inspiration. Decisions get made from a protective, defensive posture. Pessimism leads to paranoia, which leads to defensive, which leads to risk aversion. Optimism sets a different machine in notion. Especially in difficult moments, the people you lead need to feel confident in your ability to focus on what matters and not to permeate from a place of defensiveness and self-preservation. It is about believing the people around you can steer towards the best outcome and not communicating the feeling that all is lost if things do not break your way. The tone you set as a leader has an enormous effect on the on the people around you. No one wants to follow a pessimist. But wanted to get your thoughts on that and how you became um, a leader to people during that difficult time. Well, it was a, it was a lot of growth. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's so much truth to that quote. Um, I'll say a few things th- to add to that quote. Um, what's really important, first of all, is to, to gain the trust of your team mm-hmm. because when you've laid off 100 people sure. or 80% of the team well they're everybody's worried are they next mm-hmm. and so I think you need to be incredibly authentic mm-hmm. and be completely transparent okay. here where we are here's where we are here's our issues we're in this together right and so you let once you get that 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 leveling that that's that base setting and everybody understands where they are mm-hmm. and that you, that trust begins to build okay. or rebuild um, then you know the belief begins to kick in okay sure. we are going to do this okay and 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 you need to be 
I mean, it helps if you believe. I don't know how you do it if you don't believe. But you do need to be that positive, consistent force of, of, of we can do this. Right. And you have to do it in an authentic way, though, mm-hmm. because they'll read right through it okay. if it's not authentic. Right. And, um, and so you, as a, as a leader, as me as a leader, you know, after a long day, you've got to figure out how you're going to recharge yourself. Okay. It's all about, there's a, one of the folks that I've gotten very close with and I'm mm-hmm. a huge believer in is a guy named Jim, Dr. Jim Lauer. Okay. Probably the father of sports psychology in the United States. Wow. Probably the leading sports psychologist. Okay. 17 number one tennis players. Wow. Uh, and that scratching the surface. Yeah. Um, and it's all based on, um, uh, you know, real sort of uh, empirical evidence. Okay. And uh, a number of things he preaches, but but is is it, you have you have energy, mm-hmm. and you need to figure out how you're going to use that energy, okay. and how you're going to replenish that energy. Right. And I wish I had known Jim in ninety one or I mean two thousand one two thousand two, but you know I learned on my own. Um, how, how to do that in a way that it worked for me. Okay. And so anybody that's going through a tough time, you have to get yourself um, both feet on the ground, you know, firmly positioned, and and understand your own internal psyche. Right. In terms of energy, you know, you need to focus your energy on only a few things that really matter: family, you know, a business, or sort of one one and two. Okay. And then how do you replenish that? For me, right. it was running at Valley Forge Park. Okay. It was coaching the kids' soccer team. Right. Um, you had two kids at home. I did. And okay. then, or, and reading some, some great history books. Right. Um, those are sort of my three years. Oh, that's interesting. History books to see how, how, how others did it. Did it. Okay. Yes. Yes. And, and okay. you know, the, the, my, the figure, he's over there uh, with one knee in prayer, is what was, you know, it's, it may sound corny to some people, but it's, it's what I believe. George Washington, mm-hmm. what he went through. Right. Seven years of, of leading our army against Great Britain okay. made anything we went through look like, you know, easy. Easy. Yeah. And so I, I read a lot about leaders who are going through tough times. Okay. And There's a great book on President Lincoln. Yeah. I'll give you yeah. after this. That's great. Yeah. So, um, so, so it's important to, um, to figure that out. But, 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 what, what Bob says is, is completely right. You, even though there may, you're going to have defeats, you're going to have setbacks, um, you need to, to, to reorganize and keep moving. Okay. You have to keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, Grant, Ulysses Grant, the greatest military general we've ever produced, mm-hmm. had a head on. He never retreated. Right. And I think in business, you always need to move, move forward. Okay. You can stay still for a little while while you plan. Right. But you got to keep moving forward. Right. Don't go back. Mm-hmm. And um, just to give you a quick idea. Well, how did you get? I always get. How did we get? How did you get through all the debt? Right. How did you deal? You, you had how much two, debt was it again? We had five hundred sixty million of debt. Okay. Hit, at, at the end of two thousand one, after nine eleven, we had two hundred million of cash. Okay. Five sixty of debt. Wow. And we thought some really good companies, you know, right. Blackboard, ICG mm-hmm. Commerce, some really good, but they were still young and yeah. they hadn't had a chance to, to to fully grow. And all the banks said file, and we kept searching. And through a network of Chris Birch and Henry Nassau, mm-hmm. who was president at the time, we ran it into a guy named Mike Mayer, who was founder and CEO of Seaport Capital in New York. Okay. And Mike, Seaport Capital was an expert in debt, sure. investment banking around debt. Okay. Um, and Mike knew uh, 
uh, of a procedure called a 3A9, 3A9 transaction where you could okay. trade one public security of a company with another public security. Okay. So we had free, freely tradable stock and we freely tradable debt. Okay. And so he said, you can issue new shares and buy that debt. Okay. No one had come up with that idea. Right, right, right. But the key was not to let the market know okay. you were buying the debt. Otherwise, the debt would go from, it was trading about 20 cents of the dollar. Okay. So you could, um, it would go right, go right to a dollar. Right. Um, and so Mike executed with Phil, with our team, you know, Kirk Morgan and Phil Rooney, 200 transactions. Wow. Under the radar. Yeah. Talk about the chip away theory. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and so, you know, it was it was, you know, incredible uh, execution um, by the team and by Mike. Um, and so, but it was it was based on the team's just unwillingness to 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 cave in to, to, give, s- in. to yeah. give in. Right. And um, talk about getting creative. <laughs> it was incredibly creative. And uh, there, there's a lot of stories around that. I won't go into to bore everyone in, but you know, I think you just have to keep looking. Right. Moving forward, so you pay off the debt successfully in yes. 2006 around, five? We paid off the debt. We had we, we had $60 million and we refinanced the debt. Okay. And then we had eventually paid it off in 2006. Okay. So, so you're alive. Yes. Okay. So you're back alive. We're back. We're yeah. back in business. <laughs> um, so you have this comeback with this new company, Actra. Yes. So how did that, how did you pivot and how did it go from ICG to Actra? Well, it was a it was a bit of a we had to rebuild our balance sheet okay. um, because we had spent everything paying off our debt, mm-hmm. and so you know we but we had some big winners. We had we had Blackboard going public, okay. and we were the largest shareholder. We had a company called Linkshare, mm-hmm. um, which we sold to Rakuten um, for four hundred twenty five million, okay. and that was a company that was basically broke in in in. December or November of 2000, and they they raised a million dollars from us, a million from Comcast, and a million from Mitsui. Okay. And that three million eventually became, you know, 425 million. Wow. They were broke for yeah. all intents and purposes, and uh, then sold ICG Commerce. Okay. And that gave us the capital, uh, replenish our balance sheet. Sure. Okay. To to. What had happened in the intervening years is that you had Sarbanes-Oxley, you had all these rules and regulations, and it made it much more complex to be a publicly traded venture fund. Right. And uh, so the safeguard ICG model of old really didn't doesn't didn't and doesn't work in this environment. Okay. It's too expensive. It's too complex. There's lack of transparency, and so we decided in 2009, 2010 to move to an operating model. Okay. Where we would buy these SaaS businesses in vertical markets where we thought we could build a leading company. Okay. And um, and so we began to execute that once our balance sheet was replenished. Okay. We decided to change the name from ICG to Actua to to connote that, you know, this new brand okay. was an operating model. Right. Where we're based not only just on, on you know, enter, you know the, the enter, enterprise value, but on revenue and earnings. Okay. And, uh, and so the team did a great job in pivoting you know, rebranding, renaming, okay. and then sort of launching, you know, in this in 2010-11. Okay, We invested it. in some really good businesses, you know, uh, Velocity, Gov Delivery, right. okay. to, to name a few. Okay. Instamed. And then um, moving forward in 2017, you didn't sell the company, but you sold. Um... Well, we, we, we decided um, that in 2017, 16 that 
um, even though this model was light years ahead of the last model, okay. um, you know, in this in this environment today, maybe the decision was a wrong decision, but um, that we were still getting trading at a discount to what okay. we thought our true NAV or enterprise value should be, okay. and so we thought the best way to realize value was um, to sell to sell the business. Okay. Now it wasn't a natural buyer for the entire business in, as as a whole. Okay. So we orchestrated. We sold Gov Delivery in late 2016, and then we hired Evercore to orchestrate the sale of three businesses at once, mm-hmm. which is not an easy feat. Right, right, right. Um, and uh, because timing, logistics, you know, things happen. Okay. And um, we ended up uh, selling all three businesses um, at the uh, at the end of 17, early 18. Okay. Um, and uh, it was a big win for the shareholders. Okay. It was a tra- tax-free transaction. And so when we started this in 2010, 11, the shares were you know anywhere from five to six bucks, and, okay. and we'll, we've returned about eighteen dollars to share. It's amazing. So, so how much did you guys walk with, or you personally, in 2017? Enough to be satisfied. Enough to be satisfied. Well, okay. I'll put it this way: my part, you know, Doug Alexander, the president of Vice, um, is happily retired on the West Coast. Okay. So. Um, you know, it's not. It's never really been about the money. Right. It's about doing building. Building, right? And 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 doing the right thing for your investors. Mm -hmm. Definitely. What a comeback story. Yeah. And now today, if you want to talk a little bit about your company, Seminole Capital. Yes, absolutely. Um, The uh, you know, as as I as 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 I've looked at the market, um, you know, there are certainly some some amazing trends that I think we're seeing. Okay. Um, and we're going to see over the next, you know, 15 to 20 years. And, okay. um, you know, one thing, I, you know, I'm often early in these, mm-hmm. but I think that we, you know, these are trends that I don't think anybody is going to argue with. Mm-hmm. And so really want to form seminal with a partner um, that I've known for a long time um, who lives in London. And um, we decided that we were going to form a holding company, okay. and we're going to try to figure out how, the best structure to capitalize on these long-term trends. Okay. And the trends are obviously, you know, software as a service, but but within that, healthcare, okay, education, food and nutrition, okay, um, security mm-hmm. are four macro trends that I think that. Uh, we're, we're, we're just beginning. Right. Okay. And so we're, we will launch and we are launching funds and hope to, um, in, in all those areas. Okay. Um, and we'll also invest directly mm-hmm. where we, where it's not in conflict with the funds, but where, okay. where, where there's opportunities to, to do something that would be sort of above and beyond. Sure. Okay. And, um, and, and at, at holdings develop a core competency in, um, you know, obviously the basic legal and finance, but but fundraising, okay, um, FP&A skills, okay, um, and so uh, the the managers, uh, the the fund partners can can focus on what's most important, mm-hmm. finding great entrepreneurs to invest in, mm-hmm. great businesses to, to 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 invest in, and then and building, awesome, um, and then executing, okay, and now here we are today, and here we are today, executing the plan. Um, so before we finish up, there's a couple of uh, general life questions. Absolutely. We've kind of hit on some of them throughout, so we don't have to hit everything. But I really wanted to hear your definition of success, what it means to you, and when you think of the word, who do you think of? 
Huh. Um, success. Um, I thank you for la- letting me read this question before. Mm-hmm. It actually made me think about it. I think I, I'll break it into four areas. Okay. Um, I think that success for me, you know, having a set of core values mm-hmm. and then living by those values. Okay. And having that North Star. Right. Whatever that North Star is. And, and so that's very important to be true to yourself with that North Star being your guiding. Not to okay. say you won't. Secondly, um, do something that you love to do. Okay. That you don't think of it as work. Right. I mean, it may be work at times, mm-hmm. but that you get energy from, you're passionate about. That's a blessing. Mm-hmm. And that's success. And then what are your core values, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah. Um, humility. Okay. Um, love. Mm-hmm. Th- thinking of others. Okay. Like this. Yeah. Those good, good ones. <laughs> those are... Uh, you can't go wrong. Yeah. You can't go wrong. Um, and then um, obviously have... <laughs> Having a, uh, a warm and, and caring and loving family. Mm-hmm. There's dysfunction in every family. Right, right, right. <laughs> We've yeah. got a lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if the basis can be that, okay. that's success to me. Right. And then finally, for me, I'm a very spiritual person and having a close relationship with our Lord. Okay. That's I very, like this. very, very important. Um, speaking of family, so when you were going through that rough time, you had Susan at home. And yeah. Was she a rock for you? She was Susan. amazing. Okay. Um, you know, we were. I don't really talk about it, but we were seriously in debt, mm-hmm. even though, you know, at one point I had all this paper net worth and never lost her composure, mm-hmm. lost her moral compass, her, her North Star, and is an incredible mom. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, absolutely. I love that. My dad, who passed, used to always I know. say, I loved your dad. Yeah. <laughs> there's two decisions you have to make um, in life, what you do and who you marry, because both are going to yeah. affect the other. And the thing about both those decisions is no one really gives you a lot of advice on it. I know. I, know. <laughs> I mean, more on the, what you do, but not about right. getting married. Right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> not um, getting married. So we talked about leadership, and I want to talk about the art of listening. Um, yeah, I love that. I interviewed Coach Jay Wright. He always said he tells his team, you have two ears and one mouth. So always listen twice as much as you speak. So we'd love to hear about how you um, practice art of listening. You know, we we, every, we can always be a better listener, mm-hmm. and I think the, one of the areas that I focus on is being more humble. Mm-hmm. I think with humility, you become a better listener, right. become a better learner. Okay. You're always open to new ideas, mm-hmm. and it's interesting that, that you focus on listening. I was literally was talking to um, a, a team we're trying to hire to, to run the healthcare fund, and they asked me what they thought, what I thought the most important element of a of a, of a good CEO was. Mm-hmm. I said to be a good listener. Yeah. It's the most important. Listening, right. not just to your employees, but your mm-hmm. customers, Yeah, you know, to your shareholders, to everyone. Everyone, yeah. And um, the great, you know, the great executives, great entrepreneurs have that capacity. Love that. Love that. Um, and a few rapid fire questions mm-hmm. to finish it off. So what advice would you give to your 30 year old self? Are you 60 today? Not to disclose it, but... <laughs> you know, you, we had to go there, yeah. didn't we? <laughs> yeah. Yes, I am. Not okay. today, but I am 60. Okay. Um, I would say, uh, and I was fortunate to have many great people, but surround your... Be, be um, uh, surround yourself with, with, with good people that fit your moral compass. Okay. And and be more proactive. Okay. I sh- be more proactive. Okay. Don't be reactive. Right. Isn't it true that you're the 
combination of the five people you hang out with? The Yes. Okay. I forget the quote there. And, but... and, and I don't know. I can't remember the quote either, yeah. but you are who you're hanging out with. Right. And we, we all have the ability to have more influence in that direction in our lives than we think. Right. Exactly. Whether you're having breakfast with somebody or whatever. Mm-hmm. Making good, good decisions. Yeah. Yes. But you give your time and energy to. So do you have any daily routines to help you conquer the day? You mentioned you ran a lot during mm-hmm. those tough years. Yeah. I have a morning um, sort of prayer and meditation. Okay. And then I, I like to exercise, run late in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, Love that. But, uh, so both, both okay. ways. Very good. And then if you could put one phrase on a billboard, what would it be? <laughs> others. Others. Okay. Think about others. Mm-hmm. We're not here for ourselves. I had there's a great mentor, getting Pastor Gus Roman, who mm-hmm. who was uh, uh, built the Canaan Baptist Church in Germantown, Pennsylvania, to an amazing institution, and he's an amazing human being. Mm-hmm. And I was at his farewell dinner, mm-hmm. and it was the who's who of Southern Baptist people okay. around the country. Right. Um, and he concluded his speech, and he's a very humble man. And he looked at us in his big booming voice and just said, "Others." Others. Yeah. And he said it three times, and I think about that, <clears throat> you know. Weekly. Mm-hmm. weekly. I like that a lot. Um, and last question, if you could gift one book to every person you met, what would it be? Well, since I've talked about Washington earlier, okay. um, it would be a book, a biography on Washington. Joe Ellis has probably got the, 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 the uh, I think, most influential book on Washington. Okay. Joe Ellis on Washington. He is the most important figure in American history and the, probably the least understood. Okay. Um, not that he understand it's people just don't know about right right right, right. Um, and uh it's an amazing amazing human being okay i'll include that in show notes yeah um well i think we hit everything yes huh? thank you Lude air high five because yeah. of covid <laughs> oh awesome thank you that was great hi everybody thank you so very much for taking the time to listen to high five success stories to learn more about the podcast feel free to follow me on instagram my handle is at High Five Success, or on Facebook, you can like High Five Success Stories with Steph Hayden, or I'm also on Twitter. My handle is at High Five Hayden. And lastly, you can subscribe to the newsletter on my website, www.stephhayden.com. And if you get a second, I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on iTunes. Thanks so much.